Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and I am glad you're here. The Finding Refuge podcast emerged from a desire to have conversations about the intersection of grief and liberation. This podcast explores how we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times. It features guests from various backgrounds, lineages, and lived experiences. I hope you enjoy listening. I'm thrilled to bring you today's interview with Naomi Ortiz. I was introduced to Naomi's work several years ago, and in particular, Naomi's first book, Sustaining Spirit. It is a beautiful book, and we discuss it in the interview, as well as Naomi's latest book, Rituals for Climate Change. Naomi Ortiz uses they and she pronouns. Naomi explores the cultivation of care and connection within states of stress, reimagining our relationship with land and challenging who is an environmentalist in the Arizona, U.S., Mexico borderlands, is investigated in Naomi's new poetry essay collection, Rituals for Climate Change, A Crip Struggle for Eco-Justice. Their nonfiction book, Sustaining Spirit, Self-Care for Social Justice, provides informative tools and insightful strategies for diverse communities on addressing burnout. Nominated and selected as a 2022 Disability Futures Fellow and a 2021 to 2023 Reclaiming the U.S.-Mexico Border Narrative Grant Awardee, Naomi emphasizes interdependence and spiritual growth through their poetry, writing, facilitation, and visual art. Enjoy the episode. Naomi, I am so excited to be in space with you and thank you again for making time and space to be a guest on the podcast and to be in community with me in this way. We have never met in person and we were just chatting before I hit the record button um, specifically about sustaining spirit, one of your books and how much it has, I would say, touched me, transformed me and the spaces I'm in and my facilitation and many other people. So thank you so much for, for being here. It's such a privilege. Thank you for having me. I love the question in sustaining spirit about where your center sits. And I ask people this question now all of the time um, and where are you rooted and centered and where's your belly button? And I know this is at the beginning of sustaining spirit. It seems like on purpose connected to how we come into space. And so I wanted to begin with, Um, that question. And in whatever way you want to answer, want to hear some about where your center sits now and how you're coming into this space right now in this conversation. Thank you. Yes, that question uh, 
which was offered by Patricia Gonzalez. She was a birth worker here uh, in Tucson um, in her book, Red Medicine. It's the, the question is actually a dicho, it's a saying uh, that comes from our cultures and y donde esta tu ombligo, which literally means where's your belly button. Uh, but in birth work, a lot of times, you know, it relates to the umbilical cord where the umbilical cord is buried. And then thinking deeper about like the ways that we are rooted to place. Mm-hmm. And for those of us where place may not be an accessible form of refuge or or sanctuary, uh, you know, what are you rooted to is, is a good question to ask. So for me today, oh, I am definitely rooting to the concept of slowing down. <laughs> I'm feeling a little overwhelmed in life right now. Um, so slowing down, I think, is is really what I'm rooting to and how that's showing up for me is taking time to taste what I'm eating, taking time to notice there was a hummingbird outside earlier that was flitting by, taking time to notice that. So rooting to this moment, I guess, would be my answer today. Thank you for sharing that. Um, And I'm wondering, just based on your response, if the slowing down is connected in any way to the time of year, because I hear many people talk about the desire to slow down. It's, It's December when we're recording this or the need to slow down and the contraction that happens as we move towards the solstice and winter time, or, or do you feel like it's, it's more of a um, pervasive feeling of, and, and awareness of needing to slow down related to pace and cadence and what's occurring in your life. I'm just curious if it matches the season or it's emerging from some other place. Yeah. So here in the desert, uh, I live in the Sonoran desert, very fortunate to live here and this is actually very much the nice time of year it's a little bit opposite I think from (laughs) the rest of the country so summers are like you know hang out just try to make it through it's a slower time a hibernation time here and winter is very much like time to be outside time to go out and connect and hang out with friends outside and and do the thing Uh, so I think there's an element of that uh, that's part of it But I also think that I've been contemplating a lot about what makes a good life and how much busyness, I mean, this is nothing new. All all of us are talking about this all over time, but how much busyness can distract me from even really digesting what's happening in a day. So I think both those things are just really present for me right now that I'm contemplating and and, uh, in, in conversation with. It struck me when you said what makes a good life, right? And slowing down and your process around it being connected to that and the inquiry around what makes a good life. And I'm wondering what else is is coming through in response to that question. Like, what are you noticing as you ask yourself that question or in conversation with others or spirit or the universe or ancestors around what makes a a good life? What's, What's coming through? Oh, so much. Yeah. I think, you know, I've been for several reasons more aware lately of just the time we have on this earth and really challenging myself to ask myself how I want 
to be here and how I want to experience it. Not that it's all in my control. In fact, very little in a lot of ways <laughs> is in my control in terms of, you know, what happens or how things unfold in the world or, you know, how I'm impacted by grief or anger or the things that we experience, right? But the things that I can consciously shift to like bring in to my day-to-day, what makes a good life? What can I actually choose out of my day? And so it's like really simple things for me, you know, like having a good meal, uh, making sure I get outside. There's these magic moments between, you know, when people are playing music or other things are happening outside that feels very not necessarily grounding, but there's those moments where you're outside and it magically is quiet. (laughs) You can like see the sky and I don't know, just connect with the life around us. That's just such a joy to me. So some of those things I think are really important in terms of what makes a good life. Mm -hmm. You're reminding me right before our, um, this, this conversation, I took my dog Jasper out on a walk and I have a relationship with crows. I think everyone does. I'm conscious of my relationship with crows <laughs> and feel like they speak to me all of the time. And so now every time they speak to me and one did this, when I was walking Jasper, I say, hello, crow. Like I respond because I feel like, oh, they, they see me. And I mean, they could be calling at one another or talking to someone else or some other spirit moving around. But I always like to think, Um, Oh, they're speaking to me and I'm going to acknowledge their presence and them being around and what you were describing part, part of it feels like it's connected to presence and awareness and connection to all things too, and taking time to notice that. And, you know, crows are one example of that for me. There are many other examples, but I'm just, that one's, you know, fresh in my, my heart, I would say, because it just happened um, right before we, we came together in this way. So I appreciate what you named and how that links to this awareness that our time is limited here, you know, in these bodies in this particular way um, and in these incarnations of self and how for me that feels connected to taking the time to say hi crow or hi chipmunk or hi oak tree, like whatever it might be around me. So I, there's a lot of resonance in what you shared. So thank you. Oh yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with me. And I think, you know, what doesn't love to be seen? I think about that, right? (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. like a gift that's so easy to give and receive. You were seen Mm -hmm. by Crow and you saw Crow. I love that. Mm -hmm. This is making me think about sustaining spirit and what we're naming about being seen and also um, seeing in that way of sensing and connecting with And all, I mean, so many themes you weave into sustaining spirit, which I think spoke to me initially before I I just think the cover and the title, because it's focused on self-care for social justice activists and organizers and facilitators and people who hold space for transformation is how I've come to understand it as I've read it and reread it and read passages from it and all of that. And, And the way we're talking about presence in my experience, it feels very different than what I've experienced in some organizing spaces or activist spaces or spaces that are about transformation. And this is making me curious about um, what you've noticed in those spaces and even how that led you to write Sustaining Spirit, because it feels like a salve or a balm 
for the heart because in activist spaces, there's urgency. I mean, there's urgency in the world, but there's, there's like urgency we're responding to all of the time and a way that self-care is deprioritized. And so I'd love to hear some about your journey to sustaining spirit and the focus on self-care for social justice. Thank you. So Sustaining Spirit came out in 2018, and I actually started writing it in about 2008, 2009, right before self-care really kind of became this like thing that's so (laughs) labeled and marketed as self-care. But primarily because I was in spaces where I was watching people just burn out. And oftentimes, you know, younger folks coming in, not always younger folks, but, but folks, you know, new to some of the the like beautiful ideas and to the concept of community coming in with so much passion and energy, which was beautiful. But I felt like almost resetting movements sometimes back to the beginning. It was like a cycle that needed some counterbalance. And so one of my questions was like, where are the elders in these spaces? And where are the folks that carry some of the the knowledge of like how to do this for the long haul. So I interviewed, I think it was a little less than 35 people all over the country doing all different kinds of social justice activist work from like disability justice to reproductive rights to environmental activism. I also interviewed folks in Mexico and Nicaragua, just trying to learn about their practices of self-care. And I, I really remember when I went to like write this book, I was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out, how to do self-care. I'm going to go and learn from a bunch of people. I'm going to write this book on how to do it. <laughs> and I feel like what I ended up with is this book that asked lots of really, really good questions. <laughs> and, you know, just like delves into those questions, like discusses them. But it's not necessarily a traditional self-help book. It's like part workbook. So people can kind of do their own work and then also sharing stories and, and bringing a lot of nuance in, for example, you know, one of the the chapters is on accountability and how difficult accountability is within our spaces. Uh, because so many things kind of have to magically come together for accountability to actually happen. And how, for me, at least accountability is a spiritual practice, like meaning that it takes something outside of myself to make it happen, period. And not everybody has to feel that way or, you know, um, connect that way. But, and that's part of why I also included questions in in the book, because I wanted people really to be able to feel supported in their own journeys and the ways that they understood things and could could, uh, develop love and skills for for themselves. The other thing I'll say is this was also at a time in the early, was it 2010s? Is that how we say it? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, where people were talking about community care versus self-care. And a lot of, there's a lot of pushback against the concept of self-care. And for me, I did not understand what care was. I was not, not that I wasn't cared for as a you know, completely as a child or anything, but I I didn't have good concepts of care. I didn't know what appropriate care work was. 
especially as a disabled person, a lot of my interactions with other people growing up was an attempt to overcompensate in order to have friendship or to like, you know, push myself so hard to be super flexible in order to be seen and part of things uh, because people were, you know, not wanting to connect to something so different and something that made them feel so vulnerable, which is what disability inspires is vulnerability. So I had to understand what appropriate care work was. And I think that is a really important piece that gets left out of self-care conversations a lot. How do we do appropriate care work within communities if we don't know how to do it with ourselves? That's such a powerful question. The one, the link you're making between self-care and collective care and community care. And also I think this question and call for folks to contemplate how we can actually practice community care. How is it possible for us to do that if we're not caring for ourselves as well? I mean, everything you just shared and described, I relate to and can like feel into, you know, and myself at this time thinking about the ways in which I need to care for myself so I can like show up in community, right. And do what it is that I do and hold space and how sometimes it feels for me, indulgent to care for myself, given the context and what's happening in our world. Like I can be like, I'm caring for myself in this way. And there are multiple wars going on and genocide, you know, it's, it, I get caught up in that. And I don't think that's a negative thing. I think that's just me speaking to like, there's this larger context going on and within it, how do I care for myself so I can continue to be aware of what's happening, right? And then think about response. And that feels linked to community care for me too. So I appreciate you posing all of the questions you've posed in our conversation, but also in in sustaining spirit and the practices and what you described about, you know, it's part workbook and this journey people can go on. And there are all of these questions um, and story. I love the way that you infuse story throughout sustaining spirit, it feels like there are lots of points of resonance and access points. That's how I've, I feel as I engage with it. So I appreciate you laboring to, um, in all the ways you just named to create sustaining spirit and the way it feels alive and breathes and affects people and ripples out even perhaps in ways that you're not always, always aware of. And it feels timeless to me, this the questions you've posed around and the bridge between community and, and self-care and and broadening a definition of, of care, right? What does it mean um, to be cared for? What does actual care look like or feel like? Or how do we create it in community with one another? So, so much depth there. And with that, I'm curious about your practice of storytelling. I feel like this relates to your book that came out in August to Rituals for Climate Change. And because I haven't read it yet, but what I've read about it, and if it's in any way similar to Sustaining Spirit, that there's poetry in it and and story and the way you bring yourself into it and, and your lived experience. And I'm curious to know what your relationship is with storytelling. And what I mean is, is there someone that taught you to be a storyteller? Did you come in as a storyteller? Both may be true. I'm aware of that. And I'm curious to know about how you share story. Like what, 
um, how it comes from you. That question may not make sense, but I'm, there are different ways to tell stories. And so I'm just thinking about the way you've chosen the method, right? And way you've brought it in. And I'd love to hear anything you want to say about storytelling. I love this question. I've never been asked it before. <laughs> this is so great. And I'm like, oh no, how do I tell a story? <laughs> of course. I think that storytelling for me really starts with a lot of listening, whether it's listening to people, listening sort of like between the lines to things that are happening in spaces and or to place, to plants, to animals, like we were just talking about. It starts with a lot of listening. And then I think it also starts for me with a lot of questions. Um, my very first words, which I love this story so much, is that my very first words, according to my to my parents, was what's that? <laughs> and I think it was a very smart tactic. Like I was in a body cast when I was a baby. And so up to like when I was, you know, starting to talk. So it's like by asking a question, I got people to come over and talk to me. And, you know, where like other kids were like running around and I couldn't participate in that way. So I think that it starts with a lot of listening and asking questions and asking questions within myself. And honestly, I have gotten more comfortable with the ways I tell stories. I think it's much more in my second book, Rituals for Climate Change, I integrate a lot more poetry, which is kind of how I think. And honestly, how I kind of try to approach things I can't figure out or questions that I have, because you can write in snippets and feelings and imagery and see how a story evolves from there. And I, I think that's really how I come to story. This is making me think about the, the ritual of storytelling and the way you described the poetic nature or way that you relate to story through poem and images and memory, I would think too. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I love that. And I think with story, obviously through some of the stories that I've read that you've shared, there are points of resonance because there are similarities. And then there are points of like, oh, this, this doesn't match my lived experience. And yet my perspective is, is broadening because I'm receiving the story, right? Um, and the vulnerability of sharing story. So I, I love that about story where there's resonance and intersection and also where there's this opportunity to broaden the way I and perhaps one views or experiences the world. I think that's one of the most powerful parts of story um, and particularly, yeah, and the way you share it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I love it. I would love to hear some about uh, um, rituals for climate change and your journey toward that body of work. And I, I do have a question around dissonance. I was in a retreat the other day and a day long retreat and someone in the retreat does climate work, climate change work. And and this person was talking about how there was a lot of dissonance because they would look outside and it looks like winter, but it doesn't feel like winter when they go outside. For example, it was just one example they gave. And I was like, oh yeah, it's like 60 on that day. It was like 60 degrees, but it was darker and it looked like winter. So the season that we're aware of, it didn't match our, we were in North Carolina, our experience of the, the temperature. And so this person was asking about this dissonance, like, how do I respond to this? And I'm curious to know if, if you're, if you felt that, which I imagine you have, 
given your work, if you are feeling that, how you respond to that dissonance and the awareness of the way we have shifted the climate in the environment and our relationship to the natural world. So I wanted to hear some about that and dive into specifics around rituals for climate change. Thank you so much. It's a beautiful question. And I think something so many people are talking about, I had a had the privilege of being um, part of a conversation with some folks all the way, they were living all the way from Canada down through, uh, down near where I was, like the Southwest. And all of us were saying that same thing. It's like, it's just not right right now. Like it doesn't feel the same as how it should feel at this time of year. We're not having these, um, like the knowings in our bodies feel a little bit thrown off, right? So I just want to affirm, I think that's such the case for so many of us. And one of the things when I was writing Sustaining Spirit that was part of, I have this definition of self-care in the book. And, uh, you know, part of like the definition talks about like knowing where we're rooted. And that for me is really about a relationship with land. And so that's a place that I've always gone to when I felt like I kind of didn't have anything else. Like I needed something to brace against and I could access place in, in whatever way. And I say this as a disabled person who lives in the city. So, <laughs> you know, that might be like outside my doorstep. It might be looking at the sky. It might be lots of variations of what that means. But when I did have the opportunity to go out and sit like at the side of a parking lot next to, you know, a hiking path more out in what we would define as wilderness, I was noticing shifts that were occurring because the desert is getting drier and hotter and it was breaking my heart. And I felt angry, feel angry and vulnerable. And my automatic reaction was to just shut down and distance myself. Like I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. And I found myself just not going and sort of cutting that piece out of my life because it was, it felt too tender. And what's so interesting doing a lot of disability justice work is it's often how I talk about the role of disabled people. There's, that sounds a little simplistic. One of the things I think disability brings <laughs> to non-disabled folks is this uh, confrontation of vulnerability and a confrontation of the tenderness that we experience in life and the unpredictability, right? So I'm like, oh, here I am practiced in all these like social justice ways of talking about <laughs> what I'm feeling and I'm doing the exact same thing. I'm running away from it, <laughs> pushing it away. I don't want it. And I was like, I don't, I don't know how to do this. And that was like the sole question of my book. And there's a series of essays that go through rituals where I, I have conversations with the land. Cause finally I'm like, you know, if I'm really in relationship with this place, I have to go talk to it and ask what I can do. Cause there aren't, you know, as a disabled person, I can't just like participate in easy ways that I would identify to participate in, in tackling climate change in my area, like hiking out and pulling out invasive grasses, for example, that's not accessible for me. So, so what is, and how can I support this land that has supported me so much and deal with my own grief about being in this space of like something else needing care 
that I had always gone to just for, to be cared for. So there's a lot there, a lot there. So that really gets unpacked in the book. And I have these conversations with the land and, and really go through my own journey of trying to like grapple with it. And on this other side, there's this tenderness and beauty that I feel like I am able to experience now in like the best way, not a raw way, but like a love filled way. And I think it's so important that we do our own work with this, take the time to do our own work with this because this place needs us. This place does need us. And we need, we need this place. And we need this place. (laughs) We don't have anywhere else to go. (laughs) That part, right? Yep. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And specifically the way you talked about tenderness which can feel raw for people, right? And then tenderness rooted in love or connected to love or like a different relationship with tenderness. I felt that as you as you were describing it. And I'm curious to know, um, and I imagine there's more than one answer to this question, how the land speaks to you. If you're going to the land to ask what is needed and what you can do because you're here now, right? I'm curious to know in what ways does it does it share with you or speak to you? I'm sure you share this in the book. I'm just curious to know. And I'm sure you are specific <laughs> about what it's saying. I'm more like, is it the wind that's speaking to you or the grasses that are speaking to you or the crows, right? Like in what form or forums um, does this communication take? One of the things I hold so much gratitude for the land is it is so patient with me (laughs) i am a terrible listener sometimes i am a really good talker i go out there and i'm like all right (laughs) i'm worried about this i need to know this i want to know this how do i do this what does this mean you know and like i have like my whole spiels and yeah it takes a long time for me to get to a place of listening, to be totally honest. <laughs> and I have so much gratitude because the land just waits. It waits for me. And I wait with it. You know, I mean, this is relationship, right? It's like we wait with each other <laughs> to be in those moments where we can actually hear each other and 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 connect with each other. So usually it takes a long time for me to kind of get out whatever I really think I want where my brain is like there to do, you know, I have to like get that all that out of my system. And usually I kind of get to a point of like frustration and then a little bit of like despair, like this is never gonna go anywhere. (laughs) I'm sitting there and um, it's usually in those moments when I'm, I'm emptier that I can really listen. And what it feels like for me is it feels like, words come up through the soil and the sky and the the plants um and really through my own bones and yeah it's it's hard to put it into words but it's like it's like a full body feeling of listening and so yeah and so I do I do share those stories of how that that happens for me and in rituals um but I think that's that's probably the most succinct but probably not very specific way to talk about it. (laughs) 
I feel like, I mean, one, everyone who's listening, go get Naomi's books, please. Um, <laughs> and Sustaining Spirit and Rituals for Climate Change. And I feel like what you shared about it being this full body experience and and listening and the way you're with the land and the land is with you feels really important and specific to me, actually, that we're in deep relationship <laughs> in that way. And you're not going to extract information from the land, right? You recognize you're in deep right. relationship with it and are, are trying to be of service, right? To the land um, is what I have felt and heard from you. Um, and that requires like recognizing relationship and listening and taking time to listen and also thanking the land for being patient as you learn and listen and receive. And that there's this reciprocal relationship I'm sure you're offering to the land as yes. well. Yes, absolutely. I love that. It makes me, I have a, yeah, go back, go back. You go ahead. There's something that just keeps coming up being like, you need to say this. One of the themes that was really interesting that I felt like I dealt with a lot in sustaining spirit and really also in rituals for climate change was this concept of acknowledging capacity when you were talking about movement work and, and our spaces that we hold together, what a radical question it is to try to do work within capacity. And there's so much resistance. I remember being in you know, an activist community space. We were talking about doing um, an action around getting folks out of nursing homes to be able to live in the community. And people were expressing a lot of exhaustion. And I remember a person crying in like frustration, uh, being like, but people are dying. And how am I supposed to be like, I'm just too tired to do this work. And I think when we position ourselves within that, there's no way to have a, a good answer. Like, there, it, you know, how do you turn away from that kind of level of extreme, right? It's like, those levels of extreme are absolutely true. And us doing things within capacity means we get to do it, do it longer, oftentimes do it better in a way where it's actually more supported and, and like has ripple effects versus sort of a short-term consequence. And one of the things, so that was something I really discussed a lot in Sustaining Spirit. And one of the things I realized within rituals for climate change is like, if we don't have an embodied experience of capacity, how are we ever going to respect capacity of place? Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you've shared that. And you're like, I need to, I need to say this thing, right? There's so many layers to what you just shared. And, and like, for me, this feels like one of the most essential questions around capacity and what you named about capacity of place and the need to ask about, inquire about, be conscious of capacity and how it changes over time based on the conditions in place. And also this honoring capacity. And accountability. Right? It's like yeah. the question of accountability when we're working within a capacity. Ooh, that's tricky. <laughs> <laughs> it is tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. And it's much more, to me, it feels more expansive as a process and way of being 
to ask to like honor and ask about and contemplate capacity and how it evolves and shifts over time versus assuming it's like one way and one thing and stays the same mm-hmm. or that we all need to you know do the same thing in response to what's happening in our world which is n- that's not that's not how I understand healing or activism or response to the urgent concerns that are going on that we play different roles and we honor each other's capacity. And that's an expression of collective care. Like that feels rooted in community care. Oh, I love the way that you put that. Yes. Yes. I'm so grateful you brought up capacity and it's making me think of like what I can hold at in, right now, maybe different than someone else, but that might change. Right. And the ways I've been held um, by community, by land, by movements, by ancestors. So everything you named, I'm so glad that you, you shared that. It's, this is making me go to a question that I typically ask about refuge and points of refuge, um, which is part of what I feel like really speaks to me through this, the work of sustaining spirit, resourcing and refuge and capacity. It feels linked to it. And I'm, I'm wondering, and you've named some ways you're doing this, if there are other points of refuge, you name the land, right? I, I imagine there are many rituals and practices you engage. We talked about storytelling, poetry, writing. I'm wondering where you're finding refuge these days, given what's moving through. What's, I mean, there's so much. So I'm not being specific because there's there's so much moving through. Yeah, I'm curious about that. We are points of refuge or places of refuge. Yeah, I think what comes up is actually where we started the conversation talking about slowing down. I've been finding refuge and slowing down, which it just feels so radical and is not easy. <laughs> I think I'm also finding some refuge in the synchronicity of, of conversations that I've been having, there's, there's something about trusting. It doesn't always happen. You know, I, it's never when I want, <laughs> you know, when I'm like, okay, I need a really good conversation to make me feel better, you know? And then like, everybody's busy. It's like, you know, it's just one of those things sometimes, but uh, I've been trusting in the synchronicity a little bit more and finding refuge in conversations that I'm having kind of miraculously and randomly with folks like you, like I had a really interesting conversation with somebody the other day while I was waiting at the doctor's office, (laughs) just like, you know, like being open to finding refuge within moments of surprise and synchronicity. I like finding refuge in things that are unpredictable because oftentimes I think when I attach like a predictableness to something, like I'm always going to find refuge in X then my relationship with it can really change. And I, it can be one of like resentment or disappointment. So I like staying a little bit open to where refuge shows up in my life. I appreciate that. It, it feels connected to self-care too, that like for me, if I always expect, I mean, I, I am a yoga teacher and spiritual practitioner and um, practice movement, asana and meditation and postures and if I always view the path of yoga as a place of refuge, which in large part, it is in general a place of refuge. And then I have a 
I practice in a specific way or a specific limb from the eight limb path of yoga and I don't find refuge, right? Then I'm like, what's what's going on? Or I don't feel better after <laughs> after moving mm-hmm. or a specific pranayama practice, but I feel like worse or I'm just more awake to something and that it's it's can set up an expectation. Um, and so I love the idea of, or the element of surprise and synchronicity that you named around where we can find refuge. And sometimes it's in places we don't expect or aren't necessarily sort of looking for, but there it is. That just brings up a lot of delight for me is the word that's coming like, oh, it can happen in these places I, I don't expect. And it does. And so I appreciate the naming of that and the returning to what we began with around slowing down refuge and the process of slowing down the place and the, that slowing down allows you to arrive. And then those unexpected ways and places. So thanks for, for sharing that. I tend to ask for people who've, who are creating something, be it a book or something else or books, what their dream is for their body of work. Um, and I ask because I invite community to hold that dream with you. Um, and I believe in the power, if we can, of expressing it, be that speaking it or painting it or writing it, our dream, right? Our vision. So I'd love to end with this question of your dream for your practice, your process, your work, whatever word you want to use for, for what it is that you do, which you do many things. Thank you for that really beautiful question. I think as a writer and a visual artist, boy, I really try to respect the integrity of my work in the meaning of like, it has its own path and that's okay. And my dream for it, you know, as like holding it and respecting that integrity, but my dream, my, my greatest hope is that my work finds its way to people who need it. And it is a prompt for their own self-exploration, for conversations with others, to do the deeper work, or to like laugh and to just find some joy out of it. It doesn't always have to be about the hard stuff. To find solidarity, comfort, that's my dream for my work. It's, It's an offering. I imagine when I complete a work, one of my ceremonies is, you know, really doing this imagery and physical exercise of, of offering it to the altar of the world. It's here. It's an offering. And it's something that I hope folks will come across and, and use in the ways that they need. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that and for your many offerings to the altar of the world. Thank you for your practice and labor and ceremony and rituals and all that goes into creating right and birthing in the different ways you have and thanks for speaking your your dream sharing it with me and with us here and now and for spending time with me today in this way it's been such a honor to be in conversation with you and community with you and and I appreciate you um, and appreciate you taking this time thank you I appreciate you too and I have yeah thank you for holding the space in the world and inviting people in. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Finding Refuge. 
If you are enjoying the podcast, I encourage you to share it with friends and family members and to rate it on iTunes. In addition to sharing about this podcast, you can support my work in the world by becoming a patron on Patreon. You can find me there as Michelle C. Johnson, Skill in Action, Yoga, and Social Justice. I offer monthly movement, practices, as well as monthly divination readings. Lastly, I want to share that I have a new book that came out in August of 2023. The book is titled A Space for Us, A Guide for Leading Black, Indigenous, and People of Color Affinity Groups, published by Beacon Press. This book is a love song and a gift to Black, Indigenous, and people of color, as well as people of the global majority. I encourage you to purchase it if you are interested in facilitating affinity groups for BIPOC and people of the global majority, and if you're interested in learning more about anti-racism work. In addition, many of you know, We Healed Together came out in April of 2023. And thank you for your support of We Healed Together. And I hope you continue to support it and work with it and move through the rituals and practices to build community and connection. Thank you so much and take care. Mm -hmm.